Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, we are actually seriously in the middle part of the sermon series. And so a fourth of that time, we, uh, or, or a half of half, right? A fourth of the entire year, we spent like together in normalcy going through uh, the storyline of the Bible. And then we spent, have spent a fourth of the year and a fourth of this story time um, on the live stream and um, scattered. And now we reconvene here. And like I said, we're in the middle part. We're in the middle of the storyline of the Bible. For those of you that haven't been following along via the live stream, um, it may seem a little odd, but we're with a character named David. Many of you, if not most of you have heard of David. He's the shepherd boy. He's the guy that slays um, Goliath. And we'll talk just briefly about that. But um, without, let's, let's just pause and let's just pray, and then um, we'll get to it. Jesus, we gather together in your name. We gather together under the umbrella of you, your sovereignty, your goodness, your salvation that you provided for, for us, for those who believe in you and those who put faith in you and those who put our trust in you. And Jesus, we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, that you would draw near to us and that we would draw near to you. We remember your promises, Lord. And as many of us, we've spent time scattered, but we remember that you have called us out. You've called us to yourself and you've called us to one another. Even if we have to socially distance, we've been called to one another. And this is a picture of that. This is a picture of us being called to you as we sit under your word, as we sing songs, we sing your word back to you. And this is a picture of us being called to one another as we gather together in the best that we can in the time that we are under the trust of your sovereign goodness and your sovereign hand, Lord. And so, Lord, be near us. May your word be illuminated to us by the, by the power of your spirit. May your word give us hope for all of the aches that we feel in our heart as we, as we scroll through our, our timelines on Facebook as we think about the current events, as we maybe even read newspapers and see the news, Lord, may, may all of the longing that we feel, may it point us forward to the hope that we have in you, King Jesus, as in your powerful name we pray, amen. So even though that we are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we believe that every bit of the Bible, every book, Every chapter, every character, every story is pointing us forward to Jesus. As uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her children's storybook Bible, she says that every story whispers the name of Jesus. And so what we see even in this text is pointing us forward to something. And so the big idea of the sermon today from the text is this, and I'll fill in the blanks for us already. It is this, that Jesus is the King. He's the prophesied king that's coming that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that Jesus is the king. And as the king, Jesus, this is what he does. He subdues his, his people to himself. He subdues us as his church to himself. That Christ, he rules and he reigns and he defends his people. And it is Jesus who restrains and conquers all his and all of our enemies. And King David points us forward to that. Now, I know we're dropping into 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
Last week, we finished in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and so there's a ton of context that we've got to cover. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can kind of follow along. I'm basically going to be reading the chapter headings, but they're going to fill in the blanks for us to kind of bring us up to date to what's happening in, um, first, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Last week, we looked at King Saul, and we said King Saul was the people's king. We looked at uh, 1 Samuel, I think, chapter 15 or 16, and we saw that King Saul sinned against the Lord, and therefore, through the prophet Samuel, God rejects Saul as king. Samuel literally rips the kingship away from Saul. We see that as, as it says in the text, that, that as Samuel grabs a hold of Saul, it rips his skirt which again, questions his masculinity, but we'll leave that aside. Maybe it was a kilt, not a skirt, but nevertheless, he rips that and it's a picture of the kingship being ripped from King Saul. But King Saul isn't gonna go down that easy. It's not like King Saul is gonna be like, okay, Samuel, I hear what God wants, therefore I will humbly bow out. No, he's gonna stand up strong. And so the next chapter, what we see is we see God anointing a new king. That new king is a, he's a forgotten kind of skipped over son of a man by the name of Jesse, and his name is David. And David was, or is, he is a, at this time, he's a shepherd who's been tending to sheep. He's a poet. He's a songwriter. He sings. He plays a harp. Now, I know all of you are maybe picturing something in your mind, but let me just say this. David is no wuss. We talked last week about King Saul, that he's rough and tough, but so is David, he's rough and tough. And so when you picture a singer-songwriter, like whatever you do, don't picture Michael Bolton with his flowing hair. Think Waylon Jennings, or better than, than that, maybe Johnny Paycheck as a singer-songwriter, because um, David, he's rough and tough. David already at this point, um, as, as he's protecting his sheep, he's already killed a lion and a bear with his hands. That's what we're talking about here. Probably written a song about it. And so he's also, he writes a song and plays a harp. He has all of that. And God has anointed David as king. It also says about David, it says that he's ruddy. That's talking about his outward appearance. Unsure of what that exactly means, means he's probably rough and tough. He's unlike Saul, where it says that Saul was the most handsome man in all of Israel. David maybe is more earthy, if you will. But nevertheless, this is the most important thing as we looked at even last week, that man looks on the outside, but it's God who looks on the inside. What God declares about David as as evidence of God's grace in David's life is he says this, that David is a man after my own heart. Oh, that we may be that. Oh, that the Lord may look upon our hearts and as an evidence of our submissiveness to God and God's grace in our lives, that God may say that we are people after God's own heart. God anoints David as king. The next chapter is 1 Samuel 17, and it is the chapter when David single-handedly defeats the giant of Philistine, Goliath. It's an act of David's faith, and it's also an act of God's, uh, God's anointing upon David, of, do- of God's grace and God's power on David. And what David and Goliath is all about, for those of you that haven't watched the documentary of um, the American gospel yet. They, they talk about that. But here's what David and Goliath is all about. It's not about you conquering your giants. What David and Goliath is all about is about God's anointed warrior king that defeats the armies on, on God's people's behalf. He destroys them. And that's what's happening here. It's a sign that David is that warrior king as David defeats Goliath. First Samuel 18 
Saul makes David a general in his army, which you think, hey, that should be a good idea, but here's the bad idea. Saul is so filled with jealousy for David. There will be songs sung about David. They will go like this. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands and that just don't fall on ears of of an envious, jealous king very well. And so uh, Saul's envy and hatred for David will be ratcheted up to the point that he will literally desire to kill and try to kill David. And this will lead to a civil war in Israel. It will be divided between the house of David and the house of Saul. And so they will be at war. Israel will be at war with enemies on the outside, like the Philistines. And it will be at war on the inside between the house of David and the house of Saul. Samuel the prophet has died now. I mean, 1 Samuel 25. And now there's a new prophet. His name is Nathan. He shows up in our text. We'll see him again next week. The last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, Saul and his house, including his son son Jonathan, David's best friend, will get overrun by the Philistines. Saul will be wounded, and then Saul will literally fall upon his sword and kill himself. And so 1 Samuel ends with Saul is dead. 2 Samuel opens with David is now the king. And as king, here are some things that David does that we can see as David leads Israel into what's called the golden era. David unites the houses of Saul and the house of David and brings unity to the kingdom. David expands the borders of Israel, making it larger than even the Israel that we know today. In fact, he expands it to the exact dimensions as was promised to Abraham. David will establish Jerusalem as the capital city. He'll even rename that city the city of Zion. David will rescue the Ark of the Covenant, that Saul and his army will lose the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. It will be taken off where it spent some years away from Jerusalem and away from Israel. But David will send an army that will go on a reconnaissance mission. They will capture and get the Ark of the Covenant. They will bring it back. It will be a costly mission as a man by the name of uh, Uzzah will touch the side of the Ark and be struck dead. It will be God's uh, picture that it will be a declaration of God's holiness. It will be a picture of who God is. And so now the, key, the Ark of the, of the Covenant is now brought back to Israel. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That 2 Samuel chapter 7, that it is what some theologians would say is the high point of the Old Testament. It's kind of the climax as we climb the hill from Genesis, especially from Genesis 3, all the way up as we climb the hill, the the tipping over point where we'll go back down the hill is actually here in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and around there. Israel is getting ready to enter into what's known as the golden era under King David. And what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the last of the Old Testament covenants that God has made covenants with people throughout. And we've talked about each one of those. God has made promises. That's what a covenant means. It's a promise, a treaty that God makes with his people through a particular person. We've looked at one promise and three covenants. And now what we have here in 2 Samuel chapter seven is known as the Davidic covenant. It's God's promise that he's making to David. And what the Davidic covenant is about, it is about the consummation of king and kingdom. We've talked about that a ton. God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, that's what he's establishing here. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place 
under God's blessing and rule. And that blessing and rule usually comes under a king. As a righteous king rules, there is the people enjoy the rule and the blessing of God. And now we have the consummation of that coming together. God's people in God's place under the God's anointed king, or at least it appears. The Davidic covenant is um, like all of the covenants would work kind of like a puzzle. Not just a puzzle, like a, a jigsaw puzzle, but I'm talking about more like a, a puzzle where, have you seen the puzzles where there's a, there's a picture that's being obscured by puzzle pieces? So as a, a, as a piece is removed, the puzzle comes up. And so like, I, you know, I'm thinking of Sesame Street and there would be like the letter J would be behind or the letter L would be behind, painted behind. And then a, a piece would be removed and you would try, and then it would come back and then it'd be removed again. And you would have to try to guess at what that picture is. The covenants work like those pieces of the puzzle being removed, each one of them, all of them painting a picture that's behind. The picture that is behind is a picture of heaven. It's a picture of Christ reigning and ruling. It's a picture of his ransom and redeemed people worshiping him. That's the picture, a picture of King Jesus on his throne reigning and ruling forever. But each of these pieces are painting that or revealing that final picture. And so even within the covenants that we've talked about, like I said, there's been a promise that's come all the way back into Genesis chapter three, shortly after the fall, that God looks at humanity and he makes a promise. The promise is even though you have sinned, even though you have fallen, even though you rebelled against me, here's the promise. I'm gonna raise up the, he says, the seed of a woman. That's a person, that's a human. A human is coming. What a human is going to do is he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan, the enemy of God. He's gonna crush his head, but that serpent is gonna strike his heel. And now what we see is what Jesus, what God is prophesying there is he's prophesying that it will be a royal seed, that it will be a king who will slay the enemies of God and his people. In Genesis chapter eight, we had the man by the name of Noah and God made a covenant to Noah. What's the sign of the covenant with Noah? I'll give you a second. I can hear you through your mumbled mass, the rainbow. And what is the declaration of the covenant God makes with Noah? It's simply this, that God will restrain evil. He will finally, finally restrain evil. But in his restraint of evil, God will not destroy the earth. He will not destroy the earth, especially by a flood. And what we see now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that it will be a single sovereign who will restrain the wicked and will accomplish the preservation of the earth. In fact, he will recreate a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis chapter 15, we saw the second covenant, which is the covenant God makes with Abraham or Abram at that time. And it's the promise of a son. It's a promise of a lineage and a land and blessing. And under David's reign and rule, as I said, the exact dimensions of that land promised to Abram will be established and achieved. And the land will be governed. It'll be governed by a righteous heir of Abraham, a Hebrew, an Israelite. And through him, he will usher in the blessings of God. He will lead them into a time of prosperity and peace and rest. In Exodus at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. It's here that God gives his people the law. And in David, what we see is we have a gracious king who sits as, as law giver on the throne of God. That when we get to, the, um, when we get to the, the prophecies in the Old Testament, they have a sort of telescoping effect. 
That's what theologians call it. It's a, it's a telescoping effect. So don't just think about a telescope that an astronomer might use. Um, I, that's right, I got astronomer and astrologer. Sometimes I, wanna, I get those mixed up. An astronomer, right, might use. Maybe think of more like a, a spyglass that a, that a pirate would use. You know, so you have this thing that's folded up, that's collapsed, and you uncollapse it. And what you have in a spyglass is you have a narrow end and a, and a wide end. You have a narrow end, and then you look through the narrow end to see the wide end. And in the same way, Old Testament prophecies can sometimes be interpreted in the same manner, that they will have a narrow end, which is a near, fu- a near future fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, but they will also telescope and look to the far off future of another greater event. And so both events are true. Both events are in accords to the prophecy. But sometimes what you have to do is you have to look through the narrow in order to see the wide. That's the telescoping effect. In 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, that promise given to David, it has that same sort of effect in it, that we see parts of this covenant being fulfilled in David and in David's near children. But ultimately what it's doing is it's pointing forward. So let's unpack the text for just a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll actually jump down and we'll look into verse number 11. In verse number 11, this is what the text says. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, so we looked at that, that was the book of Judges, the book of Ruth. He says, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. They've entered into that season. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So what's happening here is there's a play on words. Earlier, if you'll remember, as Pastor Sean read the text, in the beginning of the text, it started with the desire that David had. And King David had a desire. That desire was to build the Lord a house, to build him a temple. And now what, what um, the Lord has said through the prophet Nathan is, hey, I hear that and I, and I see what you wanna do, but I wanna trump you up one. I, not only are you, well, actually you aren't gonna build me a house, but I'm going to build a house for you. So what David was referring to when he said, Lord, I wanna build you a house was a temple. But what God is referring to, to David, as I'm gonna build you a house, isn't a house, it's not like a house you and I live in or, or a palace, but what he's pointing to is he's pointing to a dynasty. I'm gonna give you, David, a, a house, the house of David. It's gonna be a, a forever dynasty. That's the play on words that we have. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means David is gonna die. That David, you're not gonna live forever, right? You're going to, you're gonna die. And then he says, after that, I'm gonna raise up your, your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is the promise of a royal lineage under David. There will be descendants who will occupy the throne under David. This will also give criteria for kingship for the people of Israel. Are they a descendant of David? If so, then they can be king. Verse number 13, he, that that descendant, shall build a house for my name. Go back to the picture of the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so it will be David's son, Solomon, we'll see that in two weeks, who will build a temple. And let me say this on the front end. Next week, we're gonna talk about David and Bathsheba. Solomon is a product of David and Bathsheba being together. Not the first child, but a later child. Solomon is, is it comes from that union. 
It just points to God's sovereignty, even in the midst of our sin, that God is sovereign. Verse number 14. Look at the relationship. The relationship between God and David's descendants. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But look, 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So what he's saying here is your heir will stand in unique relationship to me. It's a father-son relationship. It's really the first time we've ever seen that in the text of scripture. It's the first time this kind of language is being used, which again, it helps us as we think about a framework and as we interpret this, it's a clue that now God's not just talking about David and Solomon and whoever else is gonna come after that, but he's pointing to something bigger, a father and a son relationship. He also says to David and his descendants that you can expect discipline if you commit iniquity, if you sin, but yet God's love and his grace shall not depart from you. Verse number 16, in your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, which means it's pointing to a lasting throne, or forever, that's, that's forever. That's stretching beyond this temporal earth into eternity. That the near event is the kingship of David. The near event is the, is the kingship of Solomon. And for the next actually 400 years, it will be easily traced that it will be a descendant of David sitting on the throne. That is the, that is the near event that God is prophesying. But as we look through it, we see a future event, a future event whenever the father's actual son, his only begotten will sit upon a throne. It is the truth of the future event and the future coming of Jesus. That Jesus is the king being prophesied here, being pointing forward to, he is the final fulfillment of the promise made in 2 Samuel chapter seven will come when we get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the rest of the New Testament, and even today. That as Jesus will be born, he will be called the son of David. He will be a descendant of David. Jesus will be born in what city? the city of Bethlehem. Why the city of Bethlehem? Because it's the city of his ancestors. And as you follow up his ancestors, who's his ancestors uh, rest upon? Well, we were in the book of Ruth. And remember the city of Boaz and Ruth, it was the city of what? Of Bethlehem. And Ruth ended with a, with a genealogy, with a, with a lineage. And that genealogy and that lineage was the story of how we get to Jesse, who is David's father right? Ruth and Boaz beget Obed and Obed begets somebody and somebody else begets. Finally, you get to Jesse. And so in the same way, we see that Jesus is town. Jesus is of the lineage of David, that Joseph and Jesus, they have the, and David and Jesse, they all have the same hometown, the city of Bethlehem. Like David, Jesus will be a shepherd king. Like David's Jesus will be a warrior king, slaying the enemies of God. Like David, Jesus will be anointed king and then his consummation as king will come later. Just like David, who was anointed king all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but he doesn't sit on the throne and reigning and ruling until sometime later after fighting a war and fighting a battle and Jesus himself will undergo that. 
His anointing will come at his birth, at his incarnation, but his coronation will not come until the last part of his life. In fact, Jesus will undergo two coronations. You understand what coronation is? It's the ceremony and the service that installs someone as a king when they sit upon the throne. And Jesus will undergo two coronations. He will undergo a coronation on this earth and he will undergo a coronation in heaven. He will undergo an earthly coronation that will be the pinnacle of Christ's humiliation as he gets ready to take on the cross, as he gets ready to take on the sins of, the, of man. Prior to that, Jesus will go on trial. And it is there that the Roman guards will give a mock coronation to King Jesus. They will wrap Jesus in a robe of purple. They will hand him a reed and call it his scepter and then strike it, take it from him and then strike him with it. They will place a crown upon his head, a crown of thorns. A sign will be made and hung above Jesus as he dies upon his cross, written in three different languages. The most prominent known languages at that time, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. And what will be written above Jesus as he dies? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. It will even be the chief priest who say, don't write king of the Jews, but right on there, this man says that he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate will say, I've written what I've written. I'm leaving it. Because we see the sovereign hand declaring Christ in every known language at that time, that Jesus is the king. And after Jesus's death, and then Jesus's resurrection, he'll spend 40 days with his disciples. And then Jesus will ascend to heaven where Jesus will experience his real coronation. We see that prophesied in places like Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse number seven, the psalmist writes, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's the picture of Christ as he ascends. It's the prophecy given that as Christ ascends and as he gets upon the precipice of heaven, it's as if gates are shut. And it will be that open them up will be the declaration. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. The question then is, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord. He's strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 110, Daniel 7, Acts 2, Colossians 3, Hebrews 2, and pretty much the entire book of Revelation all claim Jesus to be the king. David was a king, but Jesus is the king. And that little play on words, that little, that little transfer of words between a and the makes an important distinction. It is a definite article, the, that the usage of the, when we say Jesus is the king, it defines and accentuates and excludes. You understand this when you're playing ball, for those of us, especially men, fathers in the room, when you're playing ball with your son and you go to pitch him the ball, what do you say? Keep your eye. You don't say keep your eye on a ball. You say keep your eye on the ball. As you pitch it to him, you want to accentuate. You want to exclude all other balls. This is the one of most important. Keep your eye on the ball. And Jesus is not a king, but he is the king. Jesus, in fact, as he returns and is prophesied for us in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on back on a white horse. He's clothed in a robe dripping with blood. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which he will strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh will be written a name. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. That Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 6, what they do, much like 2 Samuel chapter 7, what they do is they put king and kingdom together. As together the saints gather around the throne of Christ. That what we see is we see that Christ's people, his kingdom that he rules over, it's a blood-bought, ransom people, a multi-ethnic, multi-colored people. And they're given crowns. And what will we do with those crowns? We will throw those crowns at the feet of our conquering king, King Jesus. Now in our remaining minutes, let me just say this. How do we respond to King Jesus? That's the truth. It's the echo of the church throughout, the, throughout history, throughout time. It is that Jesus is Lord. That's what Lord means. It means that he is king. It's a title given to him. Jesus is Lord. And how do we as his church, how do we respond to Jesus? Or let me just say this. How do we as a people, how do we respond to Jesus as king? Well, first we do this. You respond to King Jesus like you would respond to any king. You humbly take a knee. That's how you respond. Our response to King Jesus, it begins with humility. It begins with us taking a knee. You take the posture of, of humility, the posture of submission that Jesus has come, as we said, to subdue his people to himself. That's why a prophecy given in Philippians chapter two, Paul says this, that there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Why is that coming? Well, that's coming because Jesus is the king. In fact, it is the way of salvation. That's what Paul says. There is no salvation apart from confession and submission to King Jesus. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there's two parts there. And the part there that we wanna highlight is you must confess. You must confess that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is God conquering over all of his enemies. That is God's declaration by his resurrection that Jesus is Lord, Lord over all. That there is no salvation apart from confession and submission to him. You must submit to him. And what does that submission look to like? Well, it looks like this, a submission to his word. You understand submission, don't you? Those of you in the room that maybe like me grew up when watching wrestling, you understand submission. You understand when Ric Flair puts you in the figure four leg lock. You understand whenever the rock drops the people's elbow on you. You understand that your only right response to those things is to tap out. That's what submission means. We tap out. We say, God, I don't want to argue with you anymore. I don't want to fight with you. I do not want to accuse you. I just want to submit to you. I want to give you an unreserved yes with all of my life. That is what it means to submit to God and to be subdued by him. It means that you are humble and you acknowledge that he is the king. He is the king and you are not. And you submit to him by turning away from everything 
that, that grieves him, everything that goes against him, everything that would hurt him, offend him, that everything that he would not happily affirm in your life, you turn away from those things, namely sin. And you receive from him what only he can give, which is salvation. Submission is a declaration that you cannot save yourself and you throw yourself upon him and upon his salvation. That, that is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to be subdued by this king is where we, we tap out, we give in, we humble ourselves, we take a knee. And that's not an initial posture. That's not, the, that's not the entrance exam and then there's something else on the other side. That is a daily posture of the believer. The daily posture of the believer is to live in submission to God and his declared, revealed will through the, his word over our lives. That everything that we read in here, we say, Lord, I wanna happily, I, I wanna give up anything that you would not happily affirm in my life. I wanna give up anything that is incongruent to your will for my life. Number one is you humble yourself before King Jesus. You take the posture of humility. And number two, you live. Ways to respond to the kingship of Jesus. You live as the now citizen of the kingdom. Philippians 3, chapter 20, right after two, right after every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the name of Christ, right? That's a, that, has a, that has a future, a, a present, right? Coming to it as you and I, as we receive Christ as Lord, you and I, as we bow our knees before him in submission to him, that's got, that's got a fulfillment happening in the now. And also there's a future event when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. We do that as we receive Christ. We do that as we live in, in humility and submission to him. Every day we're bowing before Christ. We're taking on his cross in our life, but there's also the future event. And then there's coming also, he says in Philippians 3. It's almost, how do we respond? Well, we read chapter, we read chapter three of Philippians. We respond like this. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, meaning the church, those who have bowed and confessed in this moment and in this time and in the present. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an important text for us, I think, even today. It's a reminder that our citizenship, where is your citizenship? We were dual citizens. Our citizenship is here in the United States, but every believer has dual citizenship. Our citizenship is also in heaven. That's the present, Paul even says. Our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship is in the future, will be in heaven. He said it is in heaven now, in the present. And from it, now there's an awaiting. What is the awaiting? Well, we're waiting on a savior, the Lord. That's the King, Jesus Christ, to return. It really gives for us a picture of the kingdom of God in the present. That even though you and I are living on this kingdom and the kingdom of earth, we're living in the United States of America, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, in the city of Frankfurt, and yet you and I are greater belonging is a belonging to heaven. And you and I as citizens together, not just in individuals, but citizens together as you and I make up the church that we are part of the kingdom of God, that the church is the very kingdom of God in miniature. It's an imperfect foretaste of heaven. 
Jesus teaches us as his disciples, how are we to pray? We're to pray like this. Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as kingdom citizens, you and I, are, we, are to, we are to see and to respond to the incongruencies happening within this kingdom, the kingdom on earth, and we're to respond to them. We're to respond in prayer and in sharing the gospel and in lament and in, medi- and in mediation and intercession and a fight for justice. And when you and I see the kingdom incongruency of abortion, where mothers are killing the innocent, right? Or the most innocent children in the womb. You and I, we respond to that. How? By praying and by giving, collecting funds and supporting crisis pregnancy clinics and doing everything and anything that we can to help um, mothers in distress and mothers in need. When you and I see families in distress, what do we do? We pray and we offer classes like financial peace. We do foster care and we adopt. When you and I, when we see the unjust death of men and women like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, what do we do? We pray and we lament. We do what we can to fight for the injustice of the marginalized. When you and I see rioting and looting in the streets, unrestrained, unfettered, evil business owners having their stuff stolen, their property smashed, what do we do? We weep with those who weep. We pray for our police and other government appointed forces that they may restrain evil and do good. And we pray for Christ to come. We say, as the church has said through the centuries, Maranatha, Christ return, Christ come back. In fact, there will be a section of time that will get there that will pass the golden era. Remember I said that all of this is happening and what we have in 2 Samuel is almost like the climax of the Old Testament. And then we're going to go down until the coming of Christ. We're going to be going down the hill in that descent, in that decline. A lot of it will come in a major section, in a major part of the storyline will be when the supposed people of God, they will be under the judgment of God because their worship of God will be defunct and it will be broken and it will be godless. And in the list of their sins and offenses at the top of the list is they will care nothing about the marginalized in their society. It'll be a failure to care for the marginalized. It'll be a failure to care about the injustices. They'll turn a blind eye and even participate in the injustices of their culture. They widen the gap between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man on this earth. And a godless religion is a religion that does nothing to help, support, to care for. Injustices and marginalized. And may that not be us. May that not be us. That even that section will end as we see a cycle of a good king and an unrighteous king. A righteous king and then an unrighteous king. And what we'll see is as a righteous king comes, the people will flourish. And as an unrighteous king comes, the people will suffer and will, like the book of Judges, it will leave us with this longing. It will leave us with this refrain where we say, oh, if only they had a king. And that's what we're living in even today. So we see all of this happening, all of this division, all of this angst in our society. It leaves us with the same refrain. Oh, if only we had a king. It leads us to long for King Jesus. And so let me just ask you as we close, have you humbled yourself beneath King Jesus? Are you living a submitted, humbled life before him even today? And are you living as a now citizen of the kingdom? Then let me pray for us. Jesus, by your power, may we as your church, may we live as kingdom citizens. May we know that our citizenship in heaven, it trumps our citizenship here on this earth. 
that first and foremost, we belong to you and we belong to your kingdom. And may you empower us to boldly share the gospel. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will, that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And until that time comes, Lord, until your return, Lord, may we exemplify the principles and the culture of this, of your kingdom. Humility, compassion, grace, love, peace, and unity. Keep us united as your church, Jesus. We have an enemy who would love to divide, but may we not be divided by political ideologies. May we not be divided by ethnicities. May we not be divided, Lord, by, any, by anything. May we not be divided by opinions, but may your shed blood be the thing that unifies us the most. May we be unified by you. May we be unified by your declaration that we are brothers and sisters in you, Lord Jesus. And Jesus, may we genuinely love. May we genuinely love. May our love be genuine. May our affection be true. May our affection be brotherly and sisterly between one another. You said in this, in the way that we love, in the way that we love each other, you're putting the gospel on display. That's how they will know that we are your disciples in the way that we love. And so may our love be genuine, Jesus. May you preserve that, Lord, as we even regather as the church, Lord, as the best that we can. May our, may our love be true. May our affections be genuine towards you and towards each other, Lord. And Lord, hasten the day. Hasten the day, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, and judge and rid this world of all the evil. And may we be preserved only by your grace, Jesus. May we remember that. Jesus, your Lord, your Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.